If you would now please turn in the back of your Bibles to Ezra chapter 8. If you're visiting with us, uh, go from the book of Psalms, or Proverbs, Psalms, Job, and there you'll find this tucked away little book, Ezra, right beside his good friend, Nehemiah. This morning we're going to read Ezra 8, and I'm actually going to be stopping at verse 20. If you would please stand together. We'll give our careful attention to the reading of God's word, for Scripture teaches us that the grass outside will wither, flowers will fade away, but the word of the living God will endure forever, so the people of God strive to hear and heed God's word faithfully together. This is the word of God in Ezra chapter 8. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia. In the reign of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of Phineas Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar Daniel, of the sons of David Hattush, of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Parosh, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men, of the sons of Pahath Moab, Eliahianai, the son of Zechariah, and with him 200 men, of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jahaziel, and with him 300 men, of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men, of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, and the son, the son of Athaliah, and with him 70 men, of the sons of Jephetiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 men, of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men, of the sons of Bani, Shelameth, the son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men, of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 men, of the sons of Azgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men, of the sons of Adonakim, those who came later, their names being Eliphalet, Jeul, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men, of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zakor, and with them 70 men. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priest, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jarib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Jeriab and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Ido, the leading man at the place Kasifia, telling them to say what to say to Ido and to his brothers and the temple servants at the palace at the place Kasifia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mahli, the son of Lehi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah, of the sons of Merari, and with his kinsmen, and their sons, 20. Besides 220 of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites, these were all mentioned by name. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's take a break. Let's pray. Lord, one of the almost curious and playful proofs of the truthfulness of your word is who else but you, O Lord, would inspire 
such a long and difficult list of names, not only here and elsewhere. Uh, surely, this is not a book written by men to please men, but rather it is the word of the living God. We believe that it is life-giving. We believe that by your Spirit, you not only inspired your word, but by your Spirit, you have preserved your word in its integrity down to this day. And we also believe that it is the intention of the Holy Spirit to bless the reading and especially the preaching of your word. And so we pray now, in spite of the frailties of the servant and even those who listen, that you would help us to glorify and enjoy you through the ministry of the Word of God. In Jesus' name we pray with confidence. Amen. And please be seated. That is arguably one of the hardest lists I've ever read in the entire Bible. Today we're going to talk about planning and attention to details. And I know as soon as I say that, some of you just checked out, but others may have gotten pretty excited because around the room, there are some who have no real interest in details and others that are always looking very carefully at them. We're going to think about two kinds of trips. This will take us into the text in ways that you'll see and understand even more as we get there. But two kinds of trips that require attention to detail. One is what we will call a round trip And the other is a one-way trip. What is the difference? Well, it's sort of obvious. Round trips are shorter, less stressful, usually involving some planning, usually involving a suitcase, perhaps a string of short goodbyes, but eventually a return to something that is familiar. One-way trips are quite different and arguably much harder. One-way trips require quite a bit more planning. They use pods instead of suitcases. They require, in the place of short goodbyes, a longer string of long and perhaps even tearful goodbyes to relatives and people that perhaps you even thought you were growing, going to grow old with. And then finally, what comes at the end of a one-way trip is in many ways a new beginning in which you have no clear sense of what the future might actually hold. A one-way trip is quite an adventure. And such a one-way trip adventure is what we see in our text today in Ezra chapter 8. And it does require paying attention to the details. Let's consider first the prioritizing of the people. Uh, Ezra gives us another list. This is not the first list that we've seen kind of like this. And uh, even better news, it's not the last list that we are going to see like this. So if you want something curious to do and a way to identify and sympathize with your pastor, when you go home, practice saying that list out loud. But I know what you're thinking. When I begin reading Ezra chapter 8, perhaps even understandably thinking, oh no, another list. More names. And perhaps even begin to worry. Not simply can the preacher pronounce all these names correctly, and I, I wouldn't give myself an A+. Plus. Uh, but, but how will you preach another long list of names in a book that has several just like it, uh, more tedious and harder to pronounce names like we find here in Ezra chapter 8? Well, one of the things that we've seen not only before, but continue to see, and it and actually becomes a, a helpful theme with a pastoral landing, is that Ezra is not simply a man of action. Ezra is a man of detail. And that details are actually important, and that details have spiritual significance. 
Faith is not blind, nor is it reckless. And just as no one would begin to engage a significant trip without planning, neither does Ezra. Ezra proves to be the type of planner that would make many people in the room here happy. He is a list maker. He is a bean counter. And he is one who doesn't miss a thing. And that actually becomes a very providential blessing in the middle of our text. If Ezra were an accountant, he would be the type that counts every single penny, and then he recounts it all over again, not simply to make sure that he missed something, but because his soul is dark just for fun. (laughs) I didn't expect that kind of reaction, but it's okay. (laughs) Ezra makes sure that nothing is missed, but Ezra also makes sure that no one is missed. And that is a very important uh, detail here in Ezra chapter 8. Ezra's not simply making sure that no pennies are lost. Ezra is making sure that no people were lost. But when you think about it, uh, in Ezra chapter 8, uh, you now see all the things as well as the people that are coming up out of Babylonia back to Jerusalem. A record of not only the people, but a record also of the offerings for the temple and the stuff that goes along with the people of God as they come. Uh, this one-way trip of nearly 5,000 people, as you see from the details a little bit later, uh, would be a Herculean adventure. Just imagine if you were going on a week-long trip with your family. Now multiply that and make it not simply a week-long trip, but a one-way trip. Not simply, it's not a one-way trip that lasts a week. It's a one-way trip that lasts for months. And it's not simply a family. It's 5,000 people that are now making this trip. 5,000 people, young and old, men and women, boys and girls, and what would you need? I mean, how many diapers does it take for a trip like that? How many toothbrushes? How much food? All the supplies. So Ezra, again, is not simply counting pennies or even gold and silver. He is tracking families. He is tracking people. And distinctions are made. Ezra, paying attention to the detail, doesn't simply note, uh, if you will, bearers of the image of God, people in general, but he makes distinctions as he counts along the way between men, women, and children, even distinctions of kind between men, leading men, men of discretion. As one writer notes, uh, this is something like a diary, perhaps even more so like a log, an accounting journal of all the things and all the people that came up out of Babylon. And why? Why? Well, part of his job, which is very important, every parent can appreciate this, is to make sure that no one is lost or left behind. That not a one is left behind. If you were following with us earlier in the book, uh, this is the second wave of exiles that are returning from Babylon to Jerusalem. This wave is 5,000 people. The first wave was nearly 50,000. 50,000 Israelites making a four-month trip from May through uh, the late summer. 50,000 Israelites making a virtual exodus all over again in the year 537 B.C. Now this second wave makes a one-way trip, 5,000 people. And an interesting question might be asked, why is it two trips and not just one? Why didn't they all go together? Why doesn't everybody who is a descendant of Israel leave all at once when the decree from Cyrus was first given, when the command from God is first issued? Why did they not all go together? 
Well, in a certain sense, uh, answers are not perfectly given, but there are things uh, that are hinted at and reasons that we might wonder. Why do they not all go? Perhaps it was for spiritual reasons. Perhaps you might want to say that the more pious people went first, the brave, bold, adventurers by faith, and others that were more spiritually sluggish remained behind until things looked a bit more safe and easy. Perhaps it was for material reasons, and some uh, had uh, jobs and stability in Babylon. That seemed better than what would be held forth for them in returning to Jerusalem. Was it due to worldliness? Call it uh, outright disregard for the things of God. Uh, Or to say perhaps even more piously, uh, were they caring for those who could not care for themselves and make the trip? Were there elderly that needed to be tended? And that became an issue of motivation. Were there pregnant moms for whom it was just not the right time to begin a four-month trip through the wilderness up and down the rocky terrain of the Middle East? Were they nursing babies and again, Uh, out of concern for little ones, thought just not yet. Did they fear the things that might attack them on the way, whether it might be wolves or robbers? Or at the end of the day, were they just plain comfortable in Babylon? Well, we're not given a perfectly clear answer as to what all was going on in terms of why they did not go. But the fact is, they all did not go in the first wave. And so here we have this second wave. And yet uh, we learn even here that many Israelites yet remain behind. There are those that come in the first wave, 50,000. There are those that come in the second wave, 5,000. And then there are others who appear to never come at all, if not sometime later, more piecemeal. Notice verse 1, uh, Ezra describes those who came with me. And then again in verse 13, those who come later. But this chapter takes us to the second main grouping. And not only the 5,000 people that come, but notice uh, they are given as a horde, if you will, of 12 heads of families. Why? Uh, symbolic of the fullness of Israel now returning back to the land of Jerusalem. And Ezra leads off by literally listing off heads of households, that is, the leaders of these 12 tribes or families. Uh, This is a uh, small but curious observation, one that even some of the writers, commentators on this uh, point out, that what Ezra describes here is something that is a little bit lost, perhaps, on the modern mind. And that is the fact that he leads off describing heads of households, a phrase that we're becoming less and less familiar with. In the world of Ezra, which is the world of the Bible, uh, distinctions were made that we are losing today. Be with me here. Sometimes there's great stuff just in the details. What distinctions are we talking about? Well, distinctions between men and women. Distinctions between adults and children. Can you tell the difference between a man and a woman? It's getting harder. Can you tell the difference between an adult and a child? It's getting harder. We live in a world collapsing those distinctions, not just between genders, but also between generations. And it's worth pausing to note uh, that things that we are losing, Ezra in a certain sense takes for granted as this is the norm. And so he groups people according to their generations with spiritual leaders being marked out at the front. But again, uh, there is today a marked disdain for the aged a marked disdain for parents, and a marked disdain for spiritual leaders. This has all become really trendly. Dislike 
the elderly dislike your parents, dislike your leaders. Well, that's not the way Ezra leads. That's not the way Ezra details, and it's not the way the Bible works. One commentator even goes so far as to say it's not simply the world that's losing its grip on these important distinctions. Uh, The same sad reality is creeping into the church, where more and more, even within the church, uh, these distinctions are becoming blurry. And one of the ways that you see that is more and more we're placating and entertaining uh, rather than discipling and raising up strong spiritual leaders. So when you're looking at Ezra 8, Ezra leads with a question, almost asking, that, asking it this way, where are the heads of households? And he provides a list of those names. It was Frederick Douglass who said this, great line, I have it on a t-shirt. It is easier to raise up strong children than it is to fix broken men. It's a great line. And that's a point that we see undergirding what Ezra here is describing in the details of this list, which becomes the details of families and descriptions, not simply of families, but heads of households. So Ezra's list then focuses not simply on stuff, but puts a priority where it actually ought to be, which is on the people. But now let's move on uh, from that list, and in many ways, uh, that first large section of all those great names. I know some of you here either have uh, little ones that are on the way, or maybe we'll have uh, more little ones before long. And you know, here's, here in Ezra 8 is a great list of unused baby names. <clears throat> There's, there's no reason for you to pay money buying one of those books where every name is already familiar. This is great. I want to meet a Shemaiah or a Hakatan. Zatu. Okay, it probably won't happen, but I gave, it a, I gave it a good shot. So let's talk about the second section here in promoting the priest in verses 15 through 29. It's really a great section. If the first section is a detailed list, a record. The second section gets into sort of the substance of what is going on with those people. And it also records not only a problem, but a solution that Ezra gives. Ezra's attention to detail pays off. Uh, Whether uh, you happen to be someone who really is attentive to detail, capable at accounting or not, it's really great to have people like that around. Sometimes they even save the day, and that's exactly what we see here with Ezra. Ezra's attention to detail pays off as they gather together by this river Ahava, named for the city to which it runs away from Babylon towards uh, Ahava. Uh, Ezra, basically, uh, you can picture him now, this little three-day stop here by the river, and they're, they're bathing, they're, they're washing, you know, they're doing whatever they have to do. A large caravan like this would need water uh, in, in some ways. Uh, it would be not only a difficult journey, it could be kind of gross without water. <clears throat> you get thirsty, you need to bathe. Rivers were water sources, rivers uh, were bathtubs, uh, rivers in a certain sense uh, were toilets. And so you can almost imagine them saying, you know, the water is going this way, so you, you drink up there, uh, you bathe right here, and you, you do your business over there. And here by three days, 5,000 people, what do you think they're doing? Well, they're tending to their needs. And Ezra, The detailed accountant looks over the people and he notices importantly, very importantly, that something is off. Someone is missing. There is indeed a discrepancy in the ledger. Uh, We have these peoples, 
We have these families. We have these 12 representative heads of households, but there are no Levites. And you understandably are thinking, so what? What's the big deal? There are no Levites. Well, this is actually a really big deal and a really big problem for Ezra, and it'll be even bigger of a problem when they get to Jerusalem. It's not simply a fact that a tribe is missing or unrepresented, the tribe of Levi, but the role of the Levites in the ministry of the temple is the burden that this chapter bears. The Levites played a very important role in the temple's ministry. The priests were in charge of the sacrifices, and the priests were in charge of the inner part, the inner court of the temple. But the Levites were servants to the priests. They were like their helpers. Think the hobbits. They're the ones that that get the work done. They're not necessarily the ones wearing the bright, pretty clothes. They're, They're the ones actually behind the scenes, keeping everything functioning. They were servants to the priests, and they were in charge of the outer courts, They kept watch over the temple. They were to be stewards of the temple's possessions. They were doorkeepers and gatekeepers. And I I actually don't think we get quite right what that that phrase means. When we talk sometimes, you know, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God or hear that phrase doorkeeper or gatekeeper. Uh, Don't simply think of someone who stands there greeting like an usher at the back door, uh, that's, that's to really soften it down. Not that we're not thankful for those guys. There, there are Levites currently. But the doorkeeper and gatekeeper, they were also like bouncers or guardians. They were the ones that kept people from coming into the temple to pilfer it, to rob it. They kept the thieves out. They dealt with those whose motives for coming into the temple would be to do something that ought not to be done. But not only were they, if you will, the temple bouncers or bodyguards, the gatekeepers at the household of God, they were also, and I I love this part, they were the musicians. They were the singers. If you go back and you read through the book of Psalms, the choir was composed of Levites. They composed the choir, and not only that, they actually wrote many of the songs that we sing in the book of of Psalms, Israel's hymn book. They were the musicians that played in the temple, and during feasts like Passover and Tabernacle, they were busy as bees. And so the point is, the absence of Levites is a glaring hole, a glaring omission, a disturbing discrepancy for Ezra the accountant, who knows that the purpose of their going from Babylon back to Jerusalem is not only to rebuild the temple, but to re-engage its ministry. And without the Levites, there would be a glaring hole. This would be like, well, kids, those of you that came yesterday and had cupcakes, you don't know what cupcakes without sugar taste like, because it, it just shouldn't be. A cake or cupcake without sugar is, is just a, a piece of bread with an identity complex. <laughs> but the temple without Levites would be like a cake without sugar. An essential ingredient is missing. And Ezra, the scribe, Ezra, the accountant, Ezra, uh, the detailed guy, he notices that there's a problem, but that problem is not where it sits. It leads to an effective and clear plan Ezra calls for, again, leading men 
from those who were coming up with him from among these registered families. Their names are given, listed in verse 16. And note the two different categories. Again, details pay off. Ezra doesn't simply call for anyone. He doesn't ask for a random volunteer or show of hands, but rather he calls for leading men and men of insight. The details matter. And Ezra sends these leading men, these men of insight, to a man named Ido, or Ido. How do you pronounce it? I don't know. (laughs) But it's another cool name, just in case you need one. Himself, Ido, a leading man of a sanctuary city called Casafia, where there is arguably, uh, according to historical records, something like a little bit of a sanctuary city where the Israelites would have almost like a little mini church. If you think about uh, the beginning of what Jesus would go to and do his preaching at, his preaching ministry in the first century, his little outpost stations where they could go and have not only like a little worship service, but teaching. Uh, that's what you have here in Casafia, a little bit of a sanctuary city where Israel had an outpost. And because there was an outpost there and Israelites gathered for worship there, guess who was found there? Some Levites. Some Levites were found there. So although the exact location of the place is unknown, the people who were there and their names become known, become known, and there we find the necessary Levites continue the temple ministry. Ezra tells this emissary, this particular man, not only what to say, but who to say it to. Again, details are important. He picks out precisely, you are the guy that I want to go among these leading men and men of insight. And then he tells this man, this is exactly what I want you to say. And when you get there, who I want you to say it to. Two, he particularly plans out exactly what is to happen. And he tells them, verse 17, to send us ministers for the house of God. Again, his attention to detail pays off. And that's exactly what happens. Notice uh, the way that Ezra frames this. It's really quite wonderful when Ezra gives this man a particular plan, particular words, particular action plan, if you will. And then it happens. Notice how Ezra describes it. He does not describe it as, I came up with a great plan and it worked. He does not offer himself any self-congratulation, but rather, again, we hear this beautiful refrain that we see in the book of Ezra, the good hand of our God was upon us. Now be with me here. The good hand of our God was upon us in the details. The good hand of our God was upon us when we were in Babylon and God said, it's time to go back. The good hand of our God was upon us when God softened the heart of pagan kings to favor the nation of Israel and rebuild the temple of the God of Israel. The good hand of our God was upon us when for decades Israel's spiritual sluggishness was finally interrupted and prophets were sent like Haggai and Zechariah. And now here the good hand of our God is upon us as Ezra realized in the painful detail that the Levites are missing that God will provide all that we need. The good hand of our God was upon us. And so they brought us sons of Levi. This is like an applause moment in the text. A collage of Levites and temple servants are brought from Casaphia to join the band. This is literally putting the band back together. These are musicians. 
temple servants, songwriters, trained singers, people skilled in what the temple needs, and they are all mentioned by name. Why? Because Ezra is a man of detail, and not only are they mentioned by name, they are all recorded by name. You have to like this guy, I guess, or hate him. Ezra does not miss a beat. Ezra does not skip a detail. It's not the big things alone that matter to him, but the little things that matter. Why? Because it's not the big things alone that matter to God. It's the little things that God regards as important as well. All this comes about by the good hand of our God. But though the band is not yet entirely together, uh, there are other things that we have to look to and I'm supposed to be doing this in the third point that on your outline says praying for protection. Uh, but here, I'm going to be praying for mercy because we're not going to have that third point. The truth is, I turned in my bulletin stuff a little bit early, but it was a long week. Taught Wednesday night. We had a wedding, and it was quite a bit of work, as some of you know. And then we had an all-church birthday party, and I preached twice today. So the good news is you're only getting a two-point sermon. Uh, the, the bad news is you're getting a long two-point sermon, and I'm not done. But I am going to save the third point for next week. I'm fairly persuaded it goes with the next section because there is a prayer that is offered and then the answer of the prayer is recorded. But don't get excited. As I said, I'm not done. But I am. Well, I'll skip that for later. So let's, 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 let's move on to what is, what is still outstanding in the sermon. And that is the gospel and its application by way of Ezra chapter 8. Uh, Because there are more, there is more in this text than simply just details. Ezra's list and Ezra's attention to detail are actually quite important for a number of reasons. It's not just to paint a character sketch of Ezra and this guy who happens to be sort of a bean counter in Israel, a scribe of sorts. Uh, It's not just to say, you know, Israel had some OCD people, and we do too, so they're just like us. Or or even to hold up Ezra uh, as a man for all seasons. The point in showing Ezra's attention to detail is to actually show us that it's God himself who is truly tracking the details. Not just keeping track of who's who and who's where, but maintaining the promises and the plan of God. That is the point of Ezra chapter 8. That is the glue binding these chapters and these stories together. It was God who first gave such lists, not Israel. Excuse me, not Ezra. Lists of names, think about it. Lists of tribes, heads of households, lists of families. Not only that, lists of offices and lists of duties. If you dislike lists, in a certain sense, you are wrestling with God. Because apparently he loves them. They're all over the Bible. And they are important. Perhaps most important in this list is that which relates to uh, the priests and Levites. But also essential to the exodus. This exodus from Babylon to Jerusalem. This return of the exiles. This rebuilding of the temple. Essential to this plan is not simply the Levites. And not simply the priests. But the prophets and kings that go with them. There's a particular uh, piece of glue. In Ezra chapter 8. It's easy to overlook. It's very, very easy to overlook. But is nonetheless essential. Sometimes the smallest of details make the biggest of differences. 
Much focus here has been given on the priest, Ezra the priest, those who descend from the priest, the Levites who help the priests. But where are to be found the prophets and the kings? If those three offices are essential to the life and ministry of Israel and even even the future purposes of God uh, for his people, uh, we're not simply priests, but prophets and kings. And why does all this matter? Be with me here. Because God promised not simply the rebuilding of the temple and the resumption of sacrifices through the temple, but the real promise actually does not have to do with the temple. The essential promise, the point of all the lists, is not the rebuilding of brick and mortar, not the return of the building, but the return of the king. That is the point of the promises, and that is the point of Ezra 8. It maintains not simply the line of the Levites, a list of the priests, it maintains a list with the lineage of the king. One who would descend down the line of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, from which the Messiah would come. There are countless, countless, countless verses that relate to this. Second Samuel 7, God promises to David that from him uh, would descend one who would be king over all kings, one who would be the inheritor of an everlasting inheritance. Jeremiah 33 says it this way, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. If Ezra 8 records the list of the priests and the Levites, the question we ought to be wrestling with, even though it's not on the surface, it's nonetheless there, it's in the details, is where is our king? Israel goes back to the land. But what good will that be if they have no king? Israel rebuilds the temple. But what good will the temple be without a king to rule over them? Kids, this would be worse than a cake without sugar. It would almost be like the unimaginable, the darkest of dietary sins. It would be like pizza without crust. May it never be. May it never be. But what is the point? The fact that the Levites responded and came was indeed yet another manifestation of the good hand of God. But it's not simply in the provision of Levites that the good hand of God is displayed. In fact, it's not even on the surface that we best see the good hand of God at work. There is another detail, even in this chapter, that shows in its detail the goodness of God and his providential provision, and it's in reference to David the king. Twice in this chapter, his name is mentioned in verse 2 and in verse 20. It was David the king who set apart the Levites originally and the temple servants. But in verse 2, we meet this man, very interesting to me, I've never met someone by this name. I know many Davids, but I've never met one, Hattush. But Hattush in Ezra chapter 8, is a remarkably important name. He's found in verse 2. Why is he so important? Because he carries the line of the king. 
He carries the line of David from Babylon back to Jerusalem. It is in this obscure person, Hattush, in this little detail of the text, Hattush, that we see God's good hand will continue to be upon his people. God himself will not only maintain his people, God himself will maintain his promise. Israel will have more than a temple. Israel will again have a king. They sometimes say, and I don't actually think I understand this phrase, so one of you is going to just enlighten me after the service, I imagine. But we sometimes say this phrase, the devil is in the details. I really don't know entirely what that means. Uh, but in Ezra chapter 8, God is in the details. God is in this list of obscure names. God is in the record of these 12 families. God is in the reassembling of the band, God is in the line of the king. God is in the details. He pays attention to the smallest details of our lives. He cares about all of our needs, just as he did for his people, Israel. And God's good hand is found in the line of Hattush, the son of David. Why? Because Jesus, the son of God, descends down the line of this man. From Hattush, Jesus will descend. And he comes into this world, think about it, not simply to make a one-way trip, but a round trip. Why do we call it that? Because just as much as this temple was not a final resting place for Israel, and this priesthood would not be a final priesthood for Israel, and this king would not be a final king for Israel... It's in Jesus that we find our final resting place. Jesus who came into this world and said, yeah, this is not my home. Jesus who came to the temple and said, yeah, this this house is going to burn. Jesus who found himself a pilgrim passing through, one who came in in a certain sense, to say it in my words, never truly unpacked his suitcase because he knew that he himself was in exile and a stranger passing through. But his purpose in coming was not to settle down. Rather, his purpose in coming was to gather up, to gather up his exiled people, to gather up those whom he would carry safely to their eternal heavenly home, a far greater temple with a far greater priest, a far greater prophet, and a far greater king, all in himself. And how, beloved, how does Jesus accomplish this beautiful rescue mission, if you will, it's by not skipping a detail. It's by not skipping a detail that we are saved. Jesus did not skip the smallest of detail, and this is essentially important to the gospel and even to our Christian life. What we mean by that? How much of the law does he obey? Which of its edges did he just shave off or ignore? He obeys all the law. He does not miss a single beat. He does not skip a single line. He crosses every T and he dots every I in perfect and full obedience, but not simply in regard to the law. What about regards to the curse? Did he only satisfy part of the curse? 
Or did he not endure it all? Did he lighten part of the load and leave just a little, little luggage behind because it was too much to carry on this long trip through the cross? No, he bore it all, all the awful load. He did not lighten any of it. And how about the plan? Some of us are planners. Some of us kind of wing it. Jesus followed the plan exactly. The Father sent him with a plan. And Jesus will say at the end of his ministry, Father, I did it all. I skipped not a single step. I took no shortcuts. I did everything that you said. And not only that, and this is the part that I like the most, just like in Ezra 8, I did not lose a single one. All for whom you sent me, I have saved. All of my sheep shall be shepherded home. He not only follows the plan of God precisely, he gathers the people of God completely and beloved this is great consolation for you for just as in Ezra 8 every awkward name is recorded and not a one is lost in the book of life every one of your names is recorded and not a one will be lost if you are found in him every name is recorded And even more than in Ezra chapter 8, they shall all safely arrive. You and I may not be very attentive to detail, but praise be to God that Jesus is. And not only is he attentive to the details of the plan of God, not only is he attentive to the detail of who might be saved, Jesus, be with me here as we land, as we finish, is attentive to every detail in your life. What detail of your life does he skip? If we are tempted to say some things are just not that important, or the devil is in the details, whatever that means, a far finer phrase is to say God is in the details, and Jesus cares about every single one of the details of our life. The little things that we do are important to him, just as the big things in our mind that we do are important to him. He's not only in the details, he's preparing us for a trip. Jesus is preparing us for a trip. I know I used this line maybe a month ago, uh, but I I can't help but come back to it. Uh, One of the people I read uh, talked about it, in my opinion, in glowing ways. Jesus, even more than Ezra, is preparing his people for a trip, paying attention to the details. When they stop for rest, he watches over them to make sure that none is lost, He plans for all that we need, not simply for the beginning, but to get us safely to the end. But the trip that we are taking, beloved, uh, in some ways is a one-way trip to him. And he has provided all the details necessary to get us there. He has checked every line. Nothing is lost, and no one is lost. And there is good news to be found even in this Uh, The only way, beloved, that you can prepare yourself for this trip is to entrust yourself to him by faith, wholly and completely, even in the details. If you have not done so, and you are here as one who has not placed your faith in Christ, you are not going to like where this trip ends, and the devil will be in those details. 
But if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus, you can not only trust that he will get you there safely, you can actually trust him with every little detail of your life. The one who is watching over us not only cares more than Ezra, he is even better at seeing his people to the end of their trip. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we might imagine that when we woke up this morning, many of the things that we did seemed small or mundane, in a certain manner, insignificant and forgettable. And yet, Lord, we think about what your word says, that you are the God who has regard for the sparrows, the lilies of the field, little flowers that come and go, seasonal at best, have your full attention. How much more the people whom you have purchased with the son of your love? Perhaps, O oh Lord, a demonstration of the weakness of our faith is that we sometimes pretend that you only care about the big moments in our life, but are far away from the details. Perhaps our theology has been poorly informed to, to think in this way, and we pray, Lord, that more and more you would help us to think in accordance with your word, to recognize that in Ezra, uh, finding him a man of detail is not just to label him as a certain personality, but to recognize our God cares about small things. Our God cares about small people. Our God is the one who leads his people out of that Babylonian captivity into the city of God, to a far finer, finer temple than Jerusalem ever saw, and an even greater king than David could have possibly imagined. So Lord, help us to continue to thank you for strange names like Ido and Hattush and Ezra. But help us to thank you even more, Lord, that not only have you given us names, but that you know our names. And when those names being written in the book of life shall never be erased because you guard very protectively and watchfully, not simply over details, but over us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>